A reading from the scriptures this morning is found in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let us pray. Father God, as we come before your word this morning, let us submit to it. Let us come and allow it to speak to us. Let us not try to interject with our own thoughts, but let us hear the mind of God and honor it and delight in it and abide by it and live through it by it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If I were to ask you in the Gospels, what is the moment that you find that Jesus is most clearly struggling with something that he must submit to on behalf of the Father? What, what would be the moment that would come to mind? I would guess that most of us would think of the same moment. I, I think I heard it. Yes, the agony of the garden, the garden of Gethsemane where he's basically calling out to his dad, his father. And we don't like that dad language, but the Bible uses that dad language. He says, dad, I, I, don't, I don't really want to do this right now. I really don't want to go through with this right now. I don't want to submit to this right now. And yet... Thy will be done. I will be done. Even beyond that, in that moment, there's actually another thing Jesus had to submit to. And it was something actually that you and I must submit to as well. And that was the Scriptures. Because God had inspired men through the power of His Spirit, like Moses, like David, 
like Isaiah and others, to write in the sacred word of God promises of who the Messiah would be, of what he would come to do, this God-man Savior. And so, yes, Jesus in one sense is submitting to the Father there, but he also must submit to the breathed out word of God. The Word incarnate, made flesh, must submit to the Word breathed out through the power of the Holy Spirit. One God in three. Because if not, the work of Christ and how and the manner in which the Bible prophesied it would take place that would crush the head of the serpent would never have come to pass. And so even before we get into our passage today, and and actually our passage will begin in verse 20, um, through verse 33, we have to ask ourselves, are we really prepared to submit ourselves to the entirety of the Word of God? If you can't submit yourselves to the entirety of the Word of God, there is little hope you're going to be able to submit yourselves to the difficult things the Bible calls for us to believe and do when we have those own moments of agony and struggle when we say, really God? Is this... Is, is this what you're telling me I need to do? And he's saying, yes. And then we have to decide in those moments, is it going to be our will that will be done or, or his will that will be done? Scriptures make clear in 2 Timothy three, sixteen and 17 that this book is sufficient to teach us, to discipline us, to correct us, to grow us in righteousness. And, and really, one of the things that gets in the way of that is not the Scriptures, but it's in our stubborn, stubborn refusal to submit to the Scriptures. And yet, even this chapter in Ephesians has asked us to be able to distance ourselves from the things such as empty words and foolish talk and debauchery and drunkenness and sexual sins and work of, works of darkness that are found in the world no, not only be set against those things and struggle against them, but even be able to offer a better word, be a light in our communities. So we need to decide at the very beginning, are we going to be able to be willing to be people that say, no matter what others think, no matter what ridicule I might endure, no matter what submission I'm called to, this is God's word. This is God's word. So I'm going to honor it. And I'm going to submit to it. So we begin in verses 20 and 21, reading how we are a people giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So what is our motive in in biblical submission? What is it to be for all of us? Reverence for Christ. God desires us to be a spirit-filled people, so in awe of Christ that we submit to one another when he calls us to submit because of who Christ is. Now, when it comes to human submitting to one another, we tend to think submission requires and implies inferiority. And yet, biblically speaking, if I were to say up here, Jesus submitted to the Father's will, is that true? That's true. We just talked about it. But does that imply that Jesus is inferior then to the Father? No, of course not. That would, that would be heresy. The first, 
You want to study that kind of idea for the first 400 years of church history? The church was constantly challenging heresies that said Jesus was inferior to the Father. No, that is not what biblical submission means. Biblical submission does not require inferiority. That's something that we in our sinful natures ascribe to it. So as we approach this passage of wives and husbands, I want to make clear, none of what the Apostle Paul is about to write here is to imply women have inferiority to men in the eyes of God. Just because the Bible at times sees men's, men and women having different roles in the family, different roles within the church, make no mistake, men and women, um, again, while they're called to these different roles... It doesn't mean one is ultimately inferior to another. Actually, when the Bible describes the relationship between men and women, it's one of complementing one another, both in the church and in home. I also want you to appreciate and remember the fact that in creation, when God created everything and it was good, sin had not yet entered into the world, the first thing that was not good wasn't sin. It was man without woman. It was because even creation itself could not be called good in a fullest sense of it until man was complemented with women, with woman. And so remember that. Submission does not imply inferiority. Actually, the biblical idea is that in our unity and also in our differences, we bless one another. We, we, we display in this unity, in one sense, a foretaste, a small glimpse of the fullness of our triune God who is three in one. And so what we're not allowed to believe is the idea that, this, of submission, that the submission requested here implies inferiority. I'm someone who loves a symphony. I love the symphony. Um, feel free to always invite me to symphony types of things. I don't really love the opera. I don't need all the false drama. I don't need the actresses and actors. Just give me good music. I am happy. And yet, when I listen to a symphony, do I leave a symphony going, oh, you know, those flutes really had it over the violins. No, because I know that in all the collective, in all their different roles, in all the instruments they played and the sounds they make, they made something greater in coming together, something more beautiful to hear. And that's a little bit like what God has in mind when it talks about the collective of the church. And, and as Pastor Bruce will preach on next week, this idea of submission goes on further to other roles, to children, to, to widows, to all sorts of roles. It's not just husband and wife, but in the collective, we have a beautiful symphony here and how God's designed the church that we are to delight in. And so while verse 23, Paul will begin to begin with the illustration of a man and woman and biblical marriage, this doesn't mean for the unmarried individual here today, you're not included in this passage, or even if... Uh, you read further, you'll find your category. 
There's a principle here that is going to be illustrated by marriage, but not only seen in marriage. We are all called to, as we see in verse 21, biblically speaking, all believers uh, to submit. Because in one sense, in, this, in the most clear sense, all believers are married to who? Christ. We are the bride of Christ. We are wedded to him. There's something else I want to say about marriage. Something I think the church has tended to ignore, especially in the last two decades. Marriage is a theological reality. Let me repeat that. Marriage is a theological reality. What do I mean by that? Let me illustrate it this way. One time I was talking to somebody who identified as an atheistic Jew. Contradiction in terms, I know, but an atheistic Jew. And he wanted to talk about marriage, and he knew I was a pastor. This was when I was in Las Vegas. And he wanted to debate me on marriage. Why don't I agree with the political decree of marriage in the United States? And I did something simple. It wasn't all that confusing. I asked him, who created marriage? Who created marriage? I said, did the scientists create marriage? Did the United States create marriage? Maybe, maybe it was the ancient Egyptians or the Babylonians. And he shakes his head and he says, no. This atheistic Jew had to admit the fact that the scriptures created marriage. That God's word establishes marriage. And then I said, then what right do American political leaders have to change something that without the word of God you can't account for? Isn't that a violation of the separation of church and state? And after thinking about it for a moment, he had to admit he had never thought of it that way. Our political leaders have no right to redefine something that is established by, not their words, but by the word of God. Not by earthly governments. Marriage is sometimes something, marriage is something that comes out of the mind of God. So it comes out of the study of knowing God. We are not to let our politicians redefine what God has established in his words. Our governments did not come up with marriage. They have no right to define what God has established. What God has joined together, often used in other contexts, let no man separate. If we claim in the public square that the marital union of God can be between two men, or to women, those God has never joined together. Are we really submitting to all of Scripture? And furthermore, if you have a problem with how I'm talking about marriage right now, remember verses 20 and 21. Your problem actually isn't with me. As our passage has already made clear. 
Your problem is you have a significant area in your life where you lack reverence for Christ. God created marriage. God defines marriage. God arranges how marriage should be lived out. By the way, let me also say, because the government being in marriage sometimes makes a mess of things and even... I would be willing to marry people without signing a government paper. The government, especially later in life, can make it incredibly difficult for two people to marry. Honestly, a day might come, and it's already come to certain European countries, where for a pastor to be able to be married anyone in the public eye, he must agree to marry those which the Bible clearly says God does not ordain their marriage. And so a day might come where I'm required to do this for every marriage. Now, when it comes to what's said in verses 22 through 33, well, at first it's going to be really tempting to say, oh, women get the raw deal here, and what happens next? Notice, and if you count up the words in the Greek, men will have roughly three times the amount of instructions given to them by God in marriage than women do in this passage. Ephesians 2, 22 through 24 reads, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body and himself is its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, I want you to first notice the submission here by wives is a voluntary one. Wives are undressed individually. So biblical marriage is never to be established by the power of a husband. Actually, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 5, it says that of such submission of women, it's a way for a holy woman to adorn herself. But also notice, submission of the woman is not rooted in the specific man that woman has decided to marry. The submission is supposed to be based on what? Their love of the Lord. The Christian woman, in one sense, ideally should marry a man because they say, with this man, I believe I'll grow closer to God. What a profound and yet simple standard. With this man, I do believe I'll grow closer to God. That's the highest principle. This is why in other places in Scripture, we're encouraged to marry fellow believers. Not that I haven't seen God do amazing things in households where women are married to unbelieving spouses. Actually, my wife and I disconnected from this passage recently, just had a conversation about how so many women that we have known in our, the various church communities and congregations we've been a part of over the years, the women who are married to unbelievers very often are the most kindly individuals, a congregation um, Many of the congregations we've been in have been blessed with. But the ideal is women should seek to marry a man who complements their walk to, in the Lord. Don't marry a man because he momentarily makes you feel good or he has a really good career or he's attractive, etc. As I tell people in premarital counseling, counseling gravity always ends up winning in the end. Wrinkles happen. Hard seasons always come, so instead, you better find someone who you believe you'll grow closer to God with by marrying them. That's the ideal. 
Again, I know even in the congregation, there are exceptions. Now let's look at verse 23. What's Paul trying to say when he calls the husband the head of the wife? Sounds confusing at first, but actually what Paul is referencing is Genesis chapter 2, verses 21 through 24. The fact that woman was made from man. Adam had a unique headship in the garden by being created before Eve. And Eve only ended up coming about from the combination of both God's work, God's design, and Adam's sacrifice. The bride he would receive in Adam would have never happened without God's work and the sacrificial offering. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like something else? I think it does. Something else later in Scripture. We don't tend to think of the first Adam providing a sacrificial offering as he went into sleep in order to create Eve. And yet that's exactly what happened. And that's what the first half of verse 23 is alluding to. Because of man's sacrifice in order to create his bride, woman, this means to woman, he is given a headship rule in the family. And yet the second half of verse 23 makes clear, in an ultimate sense, that sacrificial offering of the first Adam is overshadowed and points to the greater sacrificial offering of Christ who after receiving the cross went down into the sleep of death itself in order to give his bride life with him. And so why should a woman submit to a man? We already had three primary reasons by the time we've reached the end of verse 24. First, out of reverence for Christ. Second, because of how God ordered creation at the very beginning, that man helped create women. Woman, And third, in women submitting to their husbands, they are honoring the sacrificial work of Christ in which we became the Lord's bride. Next, we have the husbands. And the husbands list begins with love. But not just any kind of love. Husbands are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So let's think about this for a moment. When it comes to Jesus and the church... Who took the initiative to make sure the relationship was established? Undeniably, in love for another, one another. Was it Jesus or was it the bride, the church? It was Jesus. There is a sense that Paul's request here, while impossible, is practically telling a husband, give your wives ample reason to want to love you. Not by forcing conditions on them, but by being a good bridegroom to them. So husbands, we need to avoid legalistic thinking in regards to our wives. Did Christ choose to love us more by demanding perfect love from us in this lifetime? Or by demonstrating such perfect love? He chose mainly to love by demonstrating perfect love. And the demonstration of his love, it changes his bride to be a faithful and loving one. And this overwhelming love, as we read on, will help sanctify a wife. Having cleansed her, Paul says, by the washing of the water and the word. Now there is a lot in this verse. First, before the bride was presented to the groom, there was a tradition of her receiving a cleansing bath to prepare her before she would be dressed in her bridal array. 
Actually, in Ezekiel chapter 16, it, it talks about this very practice. So in one sense, Paul is referencing marriage imagery to prepare her for a marriage. Brides, the bridal cleaning and grooming themselves, spiritually speaking, in order to prepare the wife to be wedded to Christ. Another way to put it, a godly husband's job is to love their wife in such a way that through that love, she ends up loving her God more than anyone else. Let me repeat that once more. Because this idea has fallen in hard times in our society. A godly husband's job is to love their wife in such a way that through that love, she ends up loving her God more than anyone else. The believing husband must appreciate the fact that the wife's submission to him is not for the ultimate glory of the husband, but for the sake of Christ. Furthermore, in verse 27, we see husbands, the reason God gave this woman to you is so that she is made ready to love God in the life to come. I love many things about my wife. And I I would say, as our marriage has matured, I've grown to love most about her, her love for the Lord. I can really say that about her. I, can't, I couldn't say that at all times. I had a far more superficial love early in marriage. But it's a remarkable, remarkably beautiful thing to see God working in the life of my wife, preparing her for the great wedding day to come. Then in verse 28, it almost seems as Paul repeats himself, but just adding the word bodies. And so what is Paul getting at? Well, if you noticed in the earlier verses about husband, Paul's calls for how and why a husband should love their wife really centered around loving your God wholeheartedly. In one sense, this first part deals with the vertical love of God. The first great commandment that we're called to have in loving our God, to love our God with all our heart, strength, and mind. The second part of this Paul's writings on husbands will be grounded in the second great commandment, the horizontal level, what we are called when we are called to love our neighbors. Basically, you're supposed to love your neighbors, God is saying, and Paul put this woman in your neighborhood. And I say that tongue in cheek because if your wife is only in your neighborhood, not in your home, please talk to me after church. We have some things to discuss. Um, she's put her in your very house. He could have taken her other places. He could have sent her elsewhere. He gave her to you. He brought her to you for good reason. So love the one in whom God brought into your household. And as verse 29 continues, make sure she's provided for well. Cherish her. Nourish her. Provide for her. And then in the final three verses, if you've ever heard the expression, leave and cleave, It's from this section of scripture. Recently, Stephanie's father and I, uh, as we tend to do, we were giving each other a hard time. We were playing a competitive game of rummy. And as uh, Rachel and and Zach know, I I get serious about my rummy. Um, And so, you know, her father and I are going back and forth. and, And the father, at one point, he tries to Put Stephanie on his side of the battle, you know, you know, kind of the blood is thicker and water thing. And, and sure enough, without skipping a beat, we both said to him, shook our heads and said, no, 
Leave and cleave, buddy. Leave and cleave. She's in my our household. You know, she's parked now. And he was he felt so betrayed by it all. But there there is a reality here. That biblical marriage requires that after God, our spouse take priority above all others. Not children, not friends, not family, not jobs. Now, of course, there are seasons in union with one another. Sometimes for reasons of service and love, or maybe we allow other things to have a temporary uh, role at the forefront in an agreed-upon decision. Or even, sadly, having worked with uh, those addicted to things like drug addiction, sometimes even one individual might separate from the household for the good of the marriage. But the spouse is to ultimately receive a priority above all others. I love my girls. I love my family. I love my friends. But I uniquely am called to cherish and love my wife beyond all others. We can forget that at times in marriage. The priority of the spouses to take. And so now that we've read this text, it's a good time to ask ourselves, why does the Bible care so much about marriage? I mean, the Bible's opening chapters are marriage imagery. The closing chapters are marriage imagery. Jesus' first miracle is during a marriage. Even the scandal of Jesus' first coming is seen as, hmm, did Joseph and Mary not wait until they were married? Until they were wedded? The Bible constantly, some of the the most beautiful moments of of Jesus' description of his love for us is that marital imagery. So again, why does the Bible care so much about marriage? Because in marriage is found a gift from God that serves as a foretaste of the love of God. But also a godly marriage is a union of two sinners to one another. And, And in that union, God helps sanctify both of them to grow more holy together. It also is a vessel in which we can exercise grace to one another. Anyone who's been married with children knows, for instance, it's usually a lot easier to forgive your children than your spouse, right? I'm not the only one who feels this way, right? Sometimes we, it's a little harder, a little harder at times. There is a refining purpose to marriage. And let me just quickly add, there are times that you have a biblical reason, a reason from God to ultimately separate from a spouse. And I don't want to forget that too, because I know there might be people here who have exercised that. This this sermon is not trying to make you lament. God God as your ultimate bridegroom has allowed for such things at times and in certain situations. But this is a profoundly beautiful thing that Paul writes about, a profound mystery, as he puts it. And sadly, the beauty behind marriage on terms like this continues to be lost to the world. You know, I just saw a study, and it was about a decade ago, that less than one-third of graduating high school seniors desire to someday be married in our culture. One third. And and I don't think we should blame the public square on this one fully. 
We, we, we sometimes have failed to have a good language for what God sees marriage as, as believers. But that's, that's a crisis. And by the way, young women have less interest than young men in that study. And so while the world can mock, while the world can scoff, while the world can try to redefine something that God has defined, there is something sacred and sanctifying and sublime to what God has established and defined in marriage. And we want to honor it. And we want to value it. And we want to respect it. Is marriage hard at times? Is marriage difficult at times? Yes, certainly it can be. If we have any doubt, all we have to do is look at the cross. Oh, how hard it was. Oh, what it cost our bridegroom in order that he might be married to us. And yet, is it worth it? Is it good? Absolutely. And so let us honor and cherish the gift of marriage our Lord and Savior has given to us. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, I pray that this sermon makes those uncomfortable who needed to be made uncomfortable. And yet also that this sermon, that the word of God going forth might have made those who came in uncomfortable, who needed to be set at ease, that it has served to set them at ease. You have given us a great ideal here in the perfect image of marriage, most importantly through the perfect sacrificial offering of Jesus Christ. Let us love, honor, and respect it. Let us not redefine it. Let us not change it. Let us uphold this sacred gift that you have given. Amen.